0: The following message is brought to you by George Lawson Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak.
1: With that in mind, let's uh, open up our Bibles to the book of Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, this week, we're diving into the first and most foundational of all the prophecies in the book of Daniel, and uh, one of the most important and fascinating prophecies of all of Scripture. And uh, this is a prophecy that takes us all the way from the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC, clear to the reign of the Messiah an eternity future and uh, it encompasses every other prophecy in the book of Daniel and in so many ways it helps us to understand uh, the other prophecies of the of the book uh, there's a reason that this prophecy comes first uh, if you can understand this prophecy you'll be able to fit a lot of the other prophecies uh, right into place and uh, this week we're going to get into some of the details of this prophecy so uh, uh, sorry, maybe not as much uh, application. This is going to be uh, maybe a little bit more of a, a classroom today. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, we want to see how this dream unfolded in history. And uh, I don't want you to miss the big picture here uh, because Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar didn't have the advantages that we do of looking back in history to see how all these things Took place. We have that advantage to, to look back and see how these things were would unfold. On, on this side of history, we can place the details of this prophecy in its historical context. And it's so amazing to see that with pinpoint accuracy that Daniel speaks with such pinpoint accuracy. The, the prophecy of this book is astounding. In, in fact, the, the prophecies of, of this book are so clear and they're so accurate that the book of Daniel has been under attack by critics uh, since the 3rd century A.D. uh, Because Daniel writes history before it happens. Think about that. Writing history before it happens. And we'll we'll see more of that today. But uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel didn't have the advantage of the the history books that we can uh, pull out. He wasn't able to pull all this together. But let me tell you what they did know. Let me tell you what Nebuchadnezzar did know. He knew that there was a God who was able to read his mind. He knew that, that there was a God who knew his thoughts better than he knew his thoughts. uh, Daniel, when he gives this prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar, he says that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I'm going to tell you so that you can understand what you're thinking. You you don't even know what you're thinking. Let me tell you what you're thinking. Let me help you to understand what you're thinking. There is a God who understands your thoughts to that degree, that, that he can interpret your thoughts better than you can. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47, it says, The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, a Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. God is a revealer of mysteries. God knows your thoughts better than you do. Uh, we think about uh, uh, the scriptures that talk about how the, the heart can be deceitful, right? You know, how we can't even judge our own motives. You know, it takes God to do that. Because we can't even discern the thoughts of our own hearts. But God is the one who tests the hearts. God is the one who can tell you to to a better degree than you can what you're thinking and why you're thinking that. And that's why the the word of God is so instructive, isn't it? Uh, That the word of God cuts to the quick, right? It it, it separates the the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's why we need to open ourselves up to what what does God's revelation have to say about me, We want to make sure that we're placing ourselves underneath the scrutiny of God's Word. But Nebuchadnezzar knew that God was a revealer of mysteries. God knew his thoughts. And God is also the ruler of eternity. That's also something that Nebuchadnezzar found out on this day through this prophecy. Nebuchadnezzar understood that as he contemplated these thoughts in his mind about the future, about what would take place in the future about will this kingdom last, this kingdom that's just been started, will this kingdom last? He's told that the God of heaven is the ruler of all eternity. God is the ruler. The answer to that question was made clear. Daniel chapter 2, in verse 44, he says, In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. What did Nebuchadnezzar know? My kingdom's not going to last. And that there's coming one whose kingdom will last and endure for all of eternity. There is a ruler of all eternity. And if you walk away with that from this message, I'll consider this mission accomplished. You've got the big picture. There's a God who reveals mysteries and the God who is the ruler of eternity. That's the big picture. Like I said, if I've completed that, you know, mission accomplished, but there's so much more that's here, so you know I can't just let you go like that, right? Uh, but uh, you might as well enjoy the ride. So don't lose sight of the big picture, but we're going to get into the, to the weeds. We're going to get into the, the details, but just keep that big framework in mind, and we can just use that as a broad outline. God is the revealer of mysteries. God is the revealer of all eternity, and uh, then we'll follow that up with uh, the response Uh, That's uh, given by Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, let's pick up our story in uh, chapter 2, verse 29. Chapter 2 and verse 29. Daniel says, As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue... On its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or the beast of the field or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And that you saw the feet and toes partly of powder's clay and partly of iron It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In those days, in the days of those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that... Kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Let's uh, bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we're so grateful for. This text, we pray that you would open it up to us, help us to understand the things that we read here. Uh, Father, I pray that, uh, uh, that we would walk away with uh, the big picture of who you are, the God who reveals mysteries and the God who is the ruler of all eternity. Uh, Father, I pray that we would respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. There's a God who reveals mysteries. If you uh, remember in the book of Isaiah, and this is review, God presents that criteria for being qualified to be a God. If uh, you want to declare yourself to be a God or you want to declare that some idol that you have is God, uh, you can uh, put it to the test. Tell us the future. (laughs) If you're really a God, tell us the future and tell us the past. In Isaiah 41, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place as for the former events. Declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Uh, As one theologian says, God always has and always will know all things. He cannot learn more or forget anything that he knows. Infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his wisdom. That is our God. God never learns anything. He never grows in his understanding. He is infinite in his knowledge. He knows everything past, present, future With, with equal clarity. That's the God that we serve. And that means that all of eternity past and eternity future is presently known by our God. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. Isaiah 46 verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Isaiah 48, verse 6, you look, uh, you have heard, look at all this, and you will not, and, and you not declare it, and you will you not declare it. I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. God proclaims and declares things that are hidden. And if Daniel is truly speaking the revelation of God, he should be able to present the verification. If I'm speaking for God, Daniel says, I should be able to tell you the past, And I can uncover for you the future. Can Daniel do this? This is exactly what he does in verses 31 to 35, which we already read. God sees the past just as vividly as he does the present. Every place is here for God and every time is now for God. And even your dreams are not a secret to the Almighty. Daniel recounts the dream dream in detail. Like I mentioned last time, the, the king is speechless because what can you say after somebody's been walking around in your head? You know, this is what, what Daniel has been doing and seeing what's been going on in his mind, the dreams that he had uh, during the night, what he even thought before he went to sleep. Daniel knows it all because God revealed this to him. Stunning revelation, which again should terrify us uh, that our thoughts, you ever heard that phrase, your thoughts are, my thoughts are my own? Uh, not before God, they're not. <laughs> your thoughts are not your own. Daniel here proves that your thoughts are not your own. God knows your thoughts. It's an open book. Before the Lord. So Daniel proves his credentials and he's ready to now take the king into the future. Having told you the past, having unveiled your dream before you, now let me tell you about what's coming in the future. In verse 36, Daniel says, This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. And he goes on to tell this interpretation, starting with the the statue, this this massive statue that he saw, and the, the head of gold that was at the top of this massive statue. You know, at the very top of this immense statue that King Nebuchadnezzar stood before in his dream, there's this golden head, and he says, you are the head. And maybe that's one of the features, again, that frightened the king so much. You know, looking at this golden face of the statue, might might have looked like his own face. And then he sees that face, as well as the rest of the statue, uh, just get totally obliterated, crushed into powder, and like chaff, just being blown away. You know, it was a place of honor to be at the, at the head, uh, but it would be very frightening to see uh, your head, along with the rest of the body, uh, being crushed and driven away by the wind. And this is what he sees. And uh, he says uh, here, Daniel says, that, that you are that head, you're that head of gold. He calls him the, the king of, of kings. And uh, we need to understand that in context uh, because what he's saying is that there's not a king on earth that is higher than you. You're the highest king who dwells on the earth right now. He's not giving him the title king of kings as we would speak about you know, Jesus Christ being the king of kings. He's saying that on the earth right now, you're the, you're the top. There's nobody higher than you. There's nobody more powerful than you. you. You have this dominion over everything. Verse 38 says, wherever the sons of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, he's given them into your, your hand. He's caused you to rule over them and unlike some of the kings that would follow him, uh, he didn't have to follow rules. He made the rules. You know, he didn't have to follow the, the law of the Medes and the Persians. He was the law, and he's called this head of gold, and uh, just to review again, uh, because Babylon was known for their gold. It was, it was a nation of gold. They, they, they covered their uh, uh, temples, uh, the, the, the stands, all the, the furniture. It was covered in gold. The, uh, their, their main god, uh, Marduk, was a, uh, a god that they worshipped, and 22 tons of gold were used for the place where they worshipped this god, the temple, the golden altar, and all the things besides that. And this is a representation of the kingdom of Babylon, the, the head of gold, uh, the, the one who's the, the leader of all the rest of the kingdoms that would come after it. And Nebuchadnezzar here is wondering about the future of this kingdom. He's the head of this kingdom, and he was wondering again about the future of that kingdom. And the answer to that comes in verse 39, after you. What does that mean? You're, you're not going to last, king. <laughs> Your kingdom's not going to last. You're, you're just one in a long series of, of kingdoms that will rise and fall, and none of it will last. And this is something that's important to point out here, that this great statue is connected to all the different kingdoms, to the kingdoms that would follow after it. And uh, this, this kingdom is a kingdom of men. That's what the statue was. It was a statue of a man, and it represents the kingdom of men. It was great. It was large. It was extraordinary. The the, the king is uh, standing before the, the statue, and he's amazed by the statue. But the Lord is the one who's going to take that dominion away from him, as well as all the kingdoms that would follow after him. As amazing as the statue may be to you, as great as the kingdoms of the earth may be to you, Uh, These kingdoms are going to come to nothing, powder, dust before the Lord. There was a man by the name of Andrew Melville, who was a Scottish reformer and a theologian. Uh, He was actually the one who succeeded John Knox as the leader of the Scottish Reformed Church, if you know that name, John Knox, one of the reformers. And he made a, a speech before King James VI of Scotland, who became King James I of England. And he believed that this king was seeking to usurp authority that didn't belong to him. You know, trying to exert authority over the church. And listen to what he said. He says this. He says, Sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. But since we have this occasion to be with you, your majesty, in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and to you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, so now I, again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of the Commonwealth, and there is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ the king of the church, whose subject James the six is, and whose kingdom he is not a king, and in whose kingdom he is not a lord, and he's not a head. We will yield to you your place and give to you due obedience, but again I say, you are not the head of the church. You cannot give us that eternal life that we seek for, even in this world, and you cannot deprive us of it. You know, the, the, the kings of the earth have limited authority and one day they will all be removed we need to keep in mind who is truly ultimate the king of all the earth the God who is over all but back to the text it says in verse 39 that after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you and this describes the the kingdom of the the breast and arms of of silver back in verse 32 if you look at uh, verse 32 in Daniel it says the the head of that statue is made of fine gold It's breast and its arms of silver. And this is the section of the the statue that Daniel describes next. And it's clear, there's a clear connection uh, that's explicitly mentioned in Daniel uh, that this kingdom that comes after Babylon is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Actually, in uh, Daniel chapter 5, and verse 28, it speaks about the kingdom that would follow Babylon. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse uh, 28, uh, as uh, Daniel is uh, declaring the the handwriting on the wall for Belshazzar, he says this in verse 28, Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. That's the kingdom that followed Babylon. And we know historically that that Babylon was conquered by the Persian king Cyrus, who ruled over the, the joint empire of the Medes and the Persians, not the separate kingdom of Media and Persia, but the joint kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And that's important to clarify because There are some, mostly critical commentators, who attempt to squeeze the kingdom of Media into this prophecy. So they try to make two kingdoms out of one. There's a kingdom of Media and a kingdom of Persia. When the scripture plainly says it's one kingdom of the Medes and Persians. Why is that important? Because uh, what these commentators, liberal commentators, seek to do is to say that Daniel really wrote after the fact that, that uh, there was a, a later author who wrote about these kingdoms that split and after the fact wrote like he was actually there during the time before they split. So they, they try to kind of crunch time down to say that there was somebody who could exist that could write about these kingdoms that had already uh, been taken over and act like he was living during that time. You know, because you can't write history before it happens, obviously, right? You know, that's the, the thinking. So they try to kind of crunch these uh, kingdoms down and say that it's, it's really two, and uh, you know, really that's what uh, the book of Daniel is talking about, but that's not what the scripture says. You know, the scripture says it was one kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and uh, October th- in uh, 539 BC, the most powerful nation in the world, Babylon, came to an end. And historians uh, fill in the details uh, for us. They let us know that the city of Babylon was surrounded by a wall. There was a, a river, the river Euphrates flowed underneath the, the wall of uh, uh, the, uh, the city of Babylon. And uh, what the Medes and the, the Persians did is they, they built a dam or a canal that, that uh, kind of turned the water away, uh, diverted the water away from you know, flowing underneath the, the city until the water level dropped to a certain degree that they could just kind of come right underneath the wall and enter into Babylon. And once inside... They killed the guards, they threw open the, the gates of the, the city, and they won the city without even having to battle. It was, it was that overwhelming that they snuck in underneath the gate and completely took over the city of, of Babylon. It's actually said that they were welcomed by some as the, the liberators. You know, there were some people that were wanting to kind of get under, out from underneath the, the thumb of, of Babylon. And uh, they had a vast taxation system. After they conquered Babylon, they started to tax Babylon and the empire. And uh, guess what kind of metal they were heavily dependent on? Silver. Silver. They were a kingdom of silver, just like the prophecy indicates. They, they didn't have the splendor of gold. They were, uh, you know, uh, silver is stronger than, than gold as a, as a metal. But, you know, here they are. They were known for, for their silver. That's how they tax people was in, in silver. They're the second kingdom. But they're followed by another. Again, look at verse 39. It says, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. And we know from history that the kingdom that followed the Medes and the Persians is Greece. And Greece is actually identified by, by Daniel in chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 11. He mentions Greece by, by name. In chapter 8, Greece is known as the shaggy goat. But here in Daniel, it's known as the, the belly of, uh, and thighs of bronze that rule over the earth. And we know from history that the Greeks conquered the Medes and the Persians, 331 B.C., ruled into 146 BC. And we also know that the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered all of the known world. Listen to this quote. Alexander was only 20 when he began his reign, and he spent most of his ruling years on an unprecedented military campaign through Asia, northeast Africa, even parts of Europe. He really did rule over the whole earth, all the way from Egypt and Europe eastward toward India. By the age of 30, this is 10 years, 20 to 30 years old, he had created one of the largest empires of the ancient world. He was undefeated in battle and is considered one of history's most successful military commanders. He is said to have wept while he was still in his 20s because there were no more lands for him to conquer. I mean, this is the kind of guy that he is. 20 to 30 years old, he conquers everything in his path. And guess what material the armies of Alexander wore? His armies were outfitted Largely with bronze helmets, bronze breastplates, bronze shields, bronze swords. they were an army of bronze. Attention to detail. I mean, think about that. The, the, the detail that we find in this prophecy is amazing. Characterized by bronze, and they moved so quickly across the known world that Daniel chapter 7 pictures this same kingdom as a leopard with wings, not just a leopard who moves fast, but a leopard with wings that speak about how fast. Alexander the Great moved across the the known world and conquered everything before him. Never lost a fight. Never lost a battle. And then finally, the last kingdom of men is the legs of iron. Feet partly of iron, partly of clay. In uh, chapter 2 and verse uh, 33, it describes this again. It says that uh, it's legs of iron, it's feet partly of iron and partly of, of clay. In verse 40, it says there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And again, we know from history that Rome conquered Greece in 146 BC. I mean, all of it just lines up. They became the dominant world power for over 500 years in the West, for another thousand years in the East. The Eastern Kingdom only faded in 1453, which is incredible to think about. They lasted, long lasted beyond any other, the the kingdoms that came before them. And it says in verse 40, it says that iron crushes and shatters all things. Like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And out of all the metals that Rome was known for, guess which metal characterized them? It was iron. Their armies were actually known as the iron armies. They were outfitted in iron armor, iron helmets, iron shields, iron swords. And, and, and Rome was set to rule with an iron fist. The, the, the word break in Aramaic actually means to crush with a hammer. And it refers to the shattering power of Rome. It crushed all the empires that preceded it, swallowing up the lands, the peoples that had been parts of these three previous empires, assimilating them into itself. They had the most powerful and long-lasting Kingdom of all the others that are mentioned. Babylon lasted about 87 years. Medo-Persia lasted about 208 years. Greece lasted 185 years. Like I said, Rome lasted over 600 years in the West, almost 1,600 years in the East. The, the, the pieces of the statue follow after one another chronologically, and the interpretation was so clear that critics of Daniel said, "This, this has to be written after the fact. Somebody had to, to pick up a pen." and write a letter saying, like, hey, I'm Daniel, and I'm writing before all this happens, and let me tell you the future. When Daniel is writing before any of this takes place, and it's not hard to see that Daniel got it all right. A man by the name of Porphyry saw that all these things had been fulfilled, couldn't deny that they had taken place, so he offered the solution that Daniel must have been a pseudonym, and somebody wrote about what happened after the fact. And since the earliest days of the church, interpreters have consistently understood the identification of the kingdoms. That was the view of Josephus, the church fathers, Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, Augustine, you know, Luther, Calvin, the list goes on. It was just clear that you know, these are the kingdoms that they're referring to. It's all, it's all there. It's consistent. It's chronological. It's not hard to figure out. The prophecies are trustworthy. And what does that tell us? That tells, tells us that everything else the prophecy says must come to pass we look back and we see that it came true just as the Bible said it would, just as Revelation said it would. Everything that the Bible says about the future is also going to take place, just as the Bible says it will. God is the revealer of mysteries. And not only that, He's the ruler of all eternity. Look at verse 34. He says, You continued looking (laughs) until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And if we're going to be honest with the text, we have to wrestle with what this says because it's clear that Jesus is the stone. Amen? And it's clear that Jesus has come. Nobody's doubting that. What is not clear is that the kingdoms of the earth have been crushed and carried away so that not a trace of them was found. And there are some interpreters who want to make the point that the the kingdom is is the growing church, you know, as the church grows, you know, but what's the order here? It says that the stone comes, the stone strikes, not a trace of the statue is found, and it's then that the stone fills the whole earth. It's the order. And would you also notice that the stone fills the earth, the earth. There's clearly a plan for this present earth that involves the stone coming down to take it over. And the interpretation is supported by the kingdoms that came before it. The kingdom of Babylonia was a physical kingdom on the earth. Medo-Persia was a physical kingdom on the earth. The kingdom of Greece, again, on the earth. The kingdom of Rome, on the earth. But then we get to the kingdom of Christ and we say, oh, that's just internally in our hearts. And it's only expressed in heaven and there's no expression on the earth. When clearly what Daniel is saying is that this stone is coming to the earth and filling the whole earth. That's what it says. Revelation 11, verse 15. Why don't you actually turn there? Revelation 11:15. 15. This is, uh, if you ever sang the hallelujah chorus, this is one of the lines that's found in that That chorus there, Revelation 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10, when you you recite the Our Father prayer, if you've ever recited that, there's a line that you might skip over. Your kingdom what? Come. Your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, the disciples came to Jesus, and when they came together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus' disciples knew that, the, that Jesus was the king, right? They knew he was the king. And they expected that the kingdom would come immediately. Like, hey, Lord, you're here. You're the king. You're that stone, right? Like, why aren't you wiping out the, the Romans? I mean, that's, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Like, let's get it on. Like, let, like, like can, can this happen now? Listen to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. It says, while they were listening to these things... Actually, why don't you just flip over to to Luke chapter 19. Just flip over there. Just so you can see this. Luke chapter 19. Look at verses uh, 11 and 12. Luke 19, verses 11 and 12. It says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. That that was the disciples' expectation. Jesus, you're the king. Uh, We're your subjects. Like, uh, are you going to take it over now? We're thinking it's going to happen immediately. That's what they're thinking. So he tells them a parable because he's near Jerusalem. He doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. And they suppose that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. What is he saying? Guys, I'm, I'm actually going to go away <laughs> to a distant country, and I'm going to come back. And that's when I'm going to bring the kingdom. I'm going to go away, receive the kingdom, and then return. What's the point? Jesus is going to leave and bring the kingdom back when he comes. There is no kingdom until he leaves, goes to the distant country. He, ascended to heaven and he comes back and he brings the kingdom with him. That's the same point that Daniel is making. That there is a stone that is coming on the earth and when it comes, it's going to break and crush the nations and fill the earth with itself. Daniel saw that stone crushing, filling the earth. What he didn't see is that in between (laughs) the Roman kingdom and the stone coming to crush the earth, that there would be a time in between where the stone would actually be crushed. Daniel didn't see that. Daniel's just seeing everything like just right in a row. Everything's just chronological, one right after the other, and then, you know, the stone comes and fills the earth and crushes all the kingdoms of the earth. He doesn't see what's happening in between. He doesn't see Jesus coming to be crushed, to be the sacrifice for his people. And this is what Jesus had to try to explain to his disciples. Guys, I'm going to the cross. It is necessary for me to go to the cross. Do you understand that if I just received the kingdom now that it would be a group of unredeemed people that I would be overseeing? No, I've, I've come to first save your souls. And then we'll talk about bringing the kingdom. But, but first he came to save our souls. And this shouldn't be surprising to us that there's this, this gap in between because we find that all over scripture. For example, Isaiah chapter nine. I'm, I'm already having you flip over to place. So just let's flip over to Isaiah nine too. Isaiah 9. This is, this is one that you guys know, isn't it? I think, I think we do this around Christmas time, don't we? Isaiah 9. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Has that happened? Yes, Jesus came, right? The, the son, was, son was given. A child was born. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Has that happened? No. No. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Is he that? Yes, he is. Then look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Has that happened? No. (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. So what we have right here is a prophecy about the one Messiah. Parts of it have been fulfilled. Other parts we're still waiting for. We're still waiting for it to come in the future. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verse, verse 1. It says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Has that happened? Yeah. The, 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 the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots. That, he's come, right? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what he hears, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Has that happened yet? No. (laughs) No. So, So we have right here in the same chapter part of the prophecy that's been fulfilled, part of the prophecy that is yet to come. We have not yet had Jesus come to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's what the disciples were hoping for trying to burn up the Samaritans. It's like, hey, you want to call down fire? Come on, Jesus, we know you can do it. Just bring the fire down on them. It's like, you don't know what spirit you're of. I'm not here for that right now. Will Jesus come and slay the, the wicked? Yes, he will. But not yet. So what's my point? The crushing of the nations that Daniel talks about that is connected to the statue, is reserved for a future time. Not a time that's already passed. This is a time that's to come in the future. It has not happened yet. Psalm 2, verse 9, has not happened yet. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That hasn't happened yet. And this is what leads us to the conclusion that the Roman Empire that is crushed is a revived Roman Empire that rises up before the Messiah returns. If you flip back to, to Daniel uh, chapter 2 again, Daniel makes this uh, distinction between the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 40. He says in verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. But then he moves further down and he pays attention to the feet and the toes. Look at this. And that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron. Why is he talking about these toes of the feet? Partly of iron, partly of pottery. So some of the kingdom will be strong, part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. As I've already said, Rome has been identified as the the legs of iron. But then a second part of that kingdom is described as having feet, partly of iron, partly of clay. And there's this connection to that latter part, but it's not completely consistent. You see that? You know, the the legs are of iron, but then it gets down to the feet, and then it's inconsistent. It's, It's still connected, but it's not consistent. There's a mixing of the clay with the the strength of the the iron and the seed of men are the problem. And then in verse 44, it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the question is, what kings is he talking about? In the days of those kings? Is he talking about the the king of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece? There are some who would say, oh yeah, that's what he's talking about. But he says here, in the days of of those kings, that's when this stone will strike. Who, who are those kings? If you remember, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are parallel to one another. And in Daniel chapter 7, it speaks about these kings. Why don't you flip over to Daniel 7? Daniel 7, Daniel talks about these four beasts. And the four beasts line up with the four kingdoms, okay? Okay? Just keep that in mind. The four beasts line up with the four kingdoms. And look at verse 7. It says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. Everybody see the connection there? The iron in Daniel 2, the iron in Daniel 7? Large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down, just like we already read of in, in Daniel chapter 2, that it will crush and trample down with the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. What are these ten horns? Look at verse 24 in Daniel chapter 7. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. What are the ten horns? Horns. The ten horns are ten kings, ten kings. And in the days of those kings, this stone will strike. And the consistency of the Bible is amazing. Why don't you flip over to Revelation seventeen? Revelation seventeen. Over in the book of uh, Revelation, the Apostle John, the Apostle, he's uh, also has a vision of a beast. And in the, the vision of the beast, this beast also has ten horns. Look at Revelation 17, starting at verse 12. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten, what? Ten kings. I I think I've seen that before. Ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings... Similar language back to the Daniel. And those who are with them are called the chosen and faithful. And it's in the days of those kings that the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And we, when we compare these texts, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 17, it all lines up. Ten horns in Revelation, ten horns in Daniel 7. And then why did they keep mentioning these toes? I think think a number 10 has something to do with it. (laughs) 10, 10, 10. It all lines up. And I've heard these objections from some that say, oh, you know, the number 10 isn't that significant. It it could be 11. It could be 12. It could be 8. It could be 9. What's so significant about 10? Because he said it. (laughs) That's what's so significant about the 10. It's it's in the Word. (laughs) I'm looking for 10 because he said 10. That's why it's so significant. And some of these same objections, they try to... Even say, well, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if it's really Rome. It could be Greece. Why do they say that? Because they can't make 10 fit with Rome. Because it hasn't happened yet. They're looking in history saying, when are these 10 kings arising out of Rome and they can't find it? So then they have to come up with some other kind of explanation because they want to make all of these things in the past. We're, we're not looking for this to happen in the future. It has to happen in the past. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. As we've already seen in the prophecies that are given in Scripture, sometimes part of the prophecy has been fulfilled and part of the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. That's consistent with Scripture. That's consistent with the Scriptures. So there are these ten kings who are connected to Rome who will be crushed at some point in the future. And here I'll quote from our dear brother, who's already with the Lord, James Montgomery Boyce who is by no means a dispensationalist. But listen to what he says. Although it is true that the church of Christ has expanded to fill the whole world in some sense, it has not destroyed the world's kingdoms, which is what the dream demands. The empires of the world have not yet fallen. They have not been broken into pieces and been scattered like the chaff. In other words, there has been no great catastrophe from the world's perspective. On the other side of the argument, the view that sees the rock that fills the earth as a future millennial reign of Christ can insist on a catastrophic event indeed it is suggested by later books of prophecy especially revelation which portrays a sudden return of Christ a millennium um, a millennium and a final judgment if Christ is actually to rule on the earth establishing an earthly and not merely a spiritual kingdom then other kingdoms obviously must be overthrown and it is easy to imagine the overthrow of 10 independent But confederated kingdoms, in my opinion, the view of dispensationalist is the best interpretation of Daniel chapter two. Thank you, Brother James Montgomery Boyce. So what does all that mean? Jesus will not slowly take over the kingdom over a long period of time, just kind of inching his way across the earth. It will be a sudden, cataclysmic, unexpected event. Jesus will not come to peacefully coexist with the governments and slowly kind of take over and, you know, we'll we'll win something over here and then then we'll win something else over there and, you know, over time we'll eventually, you know, take over everything. No, it's going to be sudden, cataclysmic, immediate, and brothers and sisters, I can't wait for that day to come. (laughs) Jesus Christ is coming back and he's not coming back to just kind of, you know, coexist you know, rip that bumper sticker off the back of your car if that's that's you. Okay, Jesus is not coming to coexist with anybody. He's coming to take over everybody. He's coming to shatter the kingdoms. He's coming to reign and to rule. And that internal, invisible reign of Jesus Christ is going to be external, invisible, and invincible. There's going to be no two-party systems, no democracies. No communists, no socialists, no colonialists, no evil dictatorships, no more voting, (laughs) no more campaigning, no more lobbying, just the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Amen. And there's not going to be a government that will follow him. And we're still commanded today to submit to earthly governments. Why? Because they still have authority. Right? Because this hasn't happened yet. When this day comes, they have no more authority. When when this day shows up, they have no more authority. You understand that? There's not a trace of them that's found. When Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, he will set up his government, his kingdom. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His shoulders. All of life is sovereignly being directed towards that end. That's what we're looking for. That's what, that's what you're praying for, whether you realize it or not. Your kingdom come. I'm praying for Jesus. Even so, quickly, come, Lord Jesus. It's like it can't be quick enough. Lord, come back and destroy all the governments that are existing right now and set up your kingdom. That's the kingdom that we're a part of. That is the kingdom that we're a part of. We're a part of it internally, invisibly, but one day it's going to be external and invincible. That's, that's what we're waiting for as believers. So how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the revealer of mysteries and the ruler of all eternity? Flip back to Daniel chapter 2. I'm excited. I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I I cannot wait for that kingdom. That, that is it. And if I die before them, the Bible says that he will bring the saints with him when he comes back to rule and to reign upon the earth. Like, give me back what's mine, Right? How did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the revealer of mysteries and the ruler of all eternity? Daniel chapter 2, look at verse 46. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel? What's going on, Nebuchadnezzar? Did homage to Daniel? Gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Not necessarily the kind of response we were hoping for, but he honored Daniel. That's actually a good thing. The word homage could actually be translated as worship. But it's clear that this is some strange attempt to direct worship to Daniel's God because that's basically what he says in the next verse. He says the, it says the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings. So this is some kind of strange attempt to give honor to Daniel's God. Now, uh, chapter 2 and verse 30, Daniel says, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me. It's not about me not more than any other living man. So Daniel would have understood this honor towards him as some kind of recognition of the God that he clearly told him about already. You know, it's not about me, it's about God. So somehow Daniel receives this honor as as somehow being given to the Lord because Daniel is not a glory thief, okay? He's not robbing God of his glory. We can't imagine that Daniel's taking any credit for himself because he's just explicitly said it, that it's not about me. Actually, there's a, uh, uh, Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, he shares an account of Alexander the Great who bowed down before the high priest of the Jews. And when he was asked by his general, and, you know, why did you do that? Why did you bow down before the high priest of the Jews? He says, I do not worship the high priest, but the God with whose high priesthood he has been honored. So somehow, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's trying to do the same thing. I'm not worshiping him, but it's like the God that he serves. Like he's just so overwhelmed. And that's how this is to be. Understood. You know, we know in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas at Lystra, you know, that the people there, after they performed a miracle, they tried to, you know, give worship to them. And uh, Paul and Barnabas ran out into the crowd and, like, tore their clothes. It was like, men, like, we're, we're men of flesh just like you are. Stop doing these things. Don't, don't look at us as gods. But in that case, they were actually thinking that Paul and Barnabas were gods. In this case, it's clear that Daniel is not being thought of as a god. But think about the humility here. Don't miss this. Here's the king, the most powerful man in the world at this time, falling on his face before one of the captives from Judah and publicly ordering gifts and incense to be offered to him. Like he's telling other people, hey, bring in the incense, bring in the gifts. Like, like this guy is amazing. This, the, the God that he serves, that is amazing. Never had anybody tell me what I'm thinking The king doesn't have it all together yet, but the Lord's doing something in all of this. So he he honors Daniel. Also, he honors Daniel's God. Verse 47, like I've already pointed out, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, revealer of mysteries since you've been able to reveal this mystery. This king is absolutely blown away by this revelation. Uh, And he has no choice but to recognize Daniel's gods as superior to his. He's not yet saying that he's the only god but like your gods are above mine. <laughs> your, your, your God is definitely above mine. And he verbalizes it. He acknowledges even the kingship of God over his kingship. And think about it. He's just been told that your kingdom's coming to an end. He's like, yep, I, I acknowledge that. He's, he's the king above all kings. He, he's the Lord of kings. And I know that one day my kingdom's coming to an end. He's given me my answer. He humbly, humbly acknowledges that. I wonder if you've ever acknowledged that in your own life, that your kingdom... If, if it's not built on Christ, it's coming to an end one day. Uh, what, what are you building your life on? Are, are, are you building your life here on the solid foundation of God and His Word? Because if that's not where you're building your life, it's coming, crashing down. It's going to be blown away into powder dust. Your, your, your life needs to be built on the solid rock. I wonder if you've acknowledged that in your life. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put that first. Like That's where you build your life on. His kingdom. His righteousness. Not on your kingdom. The kingdom is not what we eat, drink, what we wear. It's built on Jesus Christ. He honors Daniel's God. What else does he do? He rewards Daniel. The king rewards Daniel. Look at verse 48. It says, Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon we're not sure what the the gifts look like he's rewarding Daniel but I'm sure it's it's a wealthy gift we learn later on that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson Belshazzar wanted to honor Daniel and it says that he put a a robe of purple around him he put a necklace of gold around his neck he made him the, the third ruler in the kingdom and similar thing that's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar you know coming with these gifts you know robes gold you know, it's a kingdom of gold, why not give him some, right? So he comes to, to Daniel to offer him these, these gifts. And uh, Daniel receives this reward and this offer of a position, but he also recognized that he didn't have to compromise to get it. Did you notice that? Sometimes we believe that uh, compromise is the only way that we can get ahead in life. Like if I, if I somehow tone down the word, I don't want to be direct about that, you know? I don't really want to Tell them where I stand on these issues. Think that compromise is the way to get, in, get ahead. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. It may get worse for you if you take a stand, but don't believe that you can't get ahead if you take a stand. Don't think that God cannot elevate you even in a pagan environment. This is what God does here, right? Elevated Daniel, even in this pagan environment. Elevated Daniel. Why? Because he stood on the word of God. He trusted God. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of God? God will at times reward you by elevating you, even in a pagan environment. Think about the kind of inspiration Daniel would have been to the exiles who came to Babylon after him. I, I I don't have to compromise to get ahead. Look at Daniel. Look at him. This is a believer. He's outwardly a believer. And, and, and the Lord's elevated him. I'm not going to compromise my faith. You know, who knows what the Lord will do. Ezekiel came behind Daniel, and he looks at Daniel as a righteous man, a wise man. Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel 28 speaks about Daniel in that way. And finally, the king rewarded his friends. Look at verse 49. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon. And I'm not sure if you caught this, But basically, Daniel asked if his friends could take the responsibility that he was offered. He was offered to be the the governor over the province of Babylon, and he turns around and says, hey, can you make my friends the administrators over the province of Babylon, and I'll stay in the court, it says, while Daniel was at the king's court. Basically, he's saying, like, can you exchange what you're going to give me and give it to them instead? Like, make them the administrators over the province, I'll just stay in the court.'" He gives up his, his offer in order to assist his friends. He gives up his position of governor over the province and appoints his three friends instead. And this explains why Daniel wasn't with them in chapter 3. You ever wonder why Daniel wasn't next to his friends in, in chapter 3, the fiery furnace? It's because they're, they're serving in, in different places at this point. You know, he's in the court and they're in the, in the province. They're, they had different spheres of work. But these are the friends who stood with him in prayer. They're the ones who rejoiced when his prayers were answered, and Daniel's not satisfied to just see his promotion, he's eager to see his friends promoted. And in the spirit of Philippians 2, four, he's not merely looking out for his own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And all of this was a product of God's revelation. That's what all this is a product of. Just a review, revelation saves God's enemies. Save the, the wise men. The wise men were saved because of the revelation of God brings honor to God's people. Daniel was honored, brought before the king because of the revelation of God. It exalted the true God. Daniel gave praise to the true God as a result of this. Brings understanding to the simple. It uncovers the past. It unveils the future. That's the revelation of God that does that. And the revelation of God also brings great reward. All that is a result of the revelation of God. But what is your response to the revelation? What was was Nebuchadnezzar's response? We know that he rewarded Daniel. Daniel. But you know what? It's not enough just to be astonished at the Word of God. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was amazed, wasn't he? I can't believe that somebody's told me what I'm thinking. He was astonished. He even believed it was true. Like, I I, I know that this is going to happen. He honored God's servants because of the revelation. He's he's honoring the servants of God, Daniel and his friends, giving gifts. He's honoring God, at least verbally. He's saying, oh, he's the God of God's. He's the Lord of kings. But you know what? That wasn't enough. That is not the the final response to the revelation of God. The right response to the revelation of God is that you need to place your faith in it and obey it. And that's what, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar did not do. I mean, the words that he said were nice, but what is he doing in chapter 3? It's like he's seeking to fulfill the prophecy that was just spoken about him. You know, he makes this this statue of gold and wants people to bow down. What in the world, Neb? Like you were just told that this is going to take you down and now you're like trying to speed it up? Hey, bring in the statue. That was a great idea back there. Can we do that now? It's like he 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 runs in the very opposite direction of what Daniel just told him. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be astonished at the word and honor God's servants and give some kind of lip service to it. You need to place your faith in the word of God and obey it. That's the one that the Lord looks to. He who trembles at my word. Are you trembling at the word of God? Daniel chapter 4, he says, Isn't this Babylon the great that I've built by my hands? When he's just been told, The kingdom's been given to you by God. And now you're going to give yourself the credit for it? It's not enough just to give lip service to the word of God. It's not enough to be astonished at the word of God. It's not enough to honor God's servants. Oh man, that was... That's surely a great message. Really, really appreciated that. If you don't submit your life to the Word of God and obey it, it's not enough. How many times have you heard the gospel? How many times have you sat in church? How many times have you appreciated the words that were said? How many times have you felt your heart being moved or stirred over what's been communicated? And how many times have you walked away? like a man who beholds his face in a mirror and turns away absolutely unchanged. Don't, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. It's not enough. It's not enough. Submit your life to the word of God and obey what it says. If you're here and you're not a believer, submit to the word of God. Your kingdom is coming to an end. I, I, we're putting you on notice. If, if your kingdom is not built on Christ, your kingdom is coming to an end. You're on notice it's not enough just to say, oh, that, that sounds right. I know that's, that's going to, yep, I think, yep, that's true. It's not enough. Submit yourself to the Word of God and obey it. If, if, if you're here, you're a believer, and, and you're seeking to, to, to build your kingdom on anything else, seeking other things instead of the kingdom of God first, you're being put on notice now. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Build your life upon the rock, amen. Let's go to the uh, the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this day that you've given us, for the word that you've given us. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Help us, God. Help us to submit to you. Help us to express our faith in the word of God, to obey the word of God. Father, help it to be more than just appreciation, admiration, honor, lip service. Father, help it to be uh, a true change of heart that the word of God would sink sink deep into our hearts and transform us, God. In Jesus' name we pray Jesus, and give you thanks. Amen.
0: You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.